Welcome to the Modern Cloister, where we cultivate deeper thinkers and worshipers through conversations about the Christian life, in the same spirit as the community conversations that took place during the Reformation at the Black Cloister, the former monastery and home of Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina von Bora. I'm Carissa, and I'm here with Kevin, and today we're continuing our series on the five solas, which are the five foundational doctrines of the Protestant Reformation that are still as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. They marked the breaking away of what is now the Protestant Church from the Catholic Church and continue to provide the basic foundations of our theological beliefs and practices. However, while they remain incredibly important today, many people, including Christians, are unaware of them or do not fully understand their implications to their everyday life and the life of the Church. In this episode, we're going to talk specifically about the first of the solas, sola scriptura, or God's Word alone. However, if you have not yet listened to our introduction on the Reformation, we encourage you to do so before listening to this episode, as it will provide essential historical background and context for these doctrines and our discussion. To kick things off, let's talk about what is scripture. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about what is scripture? Yeah, I really like this question from the Articles of Religion, also known as the 39 Articles, that's in the Anglican Church. And the question is, what is Holy Scripture? And the response is, Holy Scripture is God's written word given by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And it's that final authority part that is what was most in focus for the uh, for the Reformation. But there's a there's a few different aspects of scripture alone that matter today and then a kind of a total understanding so let's you want to talk about some of these yeah i do so there there are five essentially that they held up as key elements of scripture and it's the inspiration of scripture the infallibility of scripture or as some might use today the term inerrancy the clarity of scripture the sufficiency of scripture and then again as, as kevin said the final authority of scripture so let's go through one at a time and just talk a little bit about it. So first off, the inspiration of scripture. So Kevin, what is the inspiration of scripture? This is probably the most famous verse when you, you think about uh, scripture alone or what is scripture. And it's it's in uh, Timothy where Paul is writing uh, to Timothy and says that all scripture is God-breathed. And um, that's actually where we get the word inspiration through, through kind of the Greek to Latin translations. And it just means that it's our belief that the Holy Spirit has dictated, not dictated, but has moved through people in time. That's the prophets, that's the apostles. And so we believe in the Bible. We believe in it as the word of God because God spoke. Uh, and this goes back through uh, throughout history. It's in the Old Testament. Just a few points um, Samuel says, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Uh, Jeremiah says, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. Uh, And even in Acts, Peter says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. So we know that God is moving through people. The Holy Spirit moves through people and the Holy Spirit is what inspires the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And this is something that wouldn't have been necessarily disputed by the Catholic Church, but it's certainly an issue uh, for today, which which we will talk about a little bit later. Absolutely. All right. Can you walk us through the next one too? Because to some degree, they go hand in hand a little bit. The infallibility of scripture, or as some would say today, the inerrancy, they're, they're typically looked at as similar 
concepts. Maybe. I really don't like inerrancy, but maybe that'd be its own podcast. Maybe um, so. <laughs> so that's that's a little controversial. That That's a relatively new word, despite what some people may argue. Uh, the, the reason we say the, that it's infallible is, again, because of the inspiration. If it is the Holy Spirit moving, then it must be without fault, right? So if he... If he is speaking, he is speaking through us. He has given the words in some, that's the thus say the Lord. Um, and of course, things that are recorded that Christ said are obviously direct. And then him moving through the writers in the New Testament, or even the revelation to John in the book of Revelation. Those are all directly from God, uh, words of Christ and movement through the Holy Spirit. So they are without error in the sense of what we're talking about and what we're trying to get to as far as the point of scripture. The next one is the clarity of scripture. And this is one that I have been particularly drawn to as we've been, we've been studying and putting some of this together. And it's the concept that God speaks. He speaks to be heard and that there is meaning in everything he says, that his covenantal words are not ambiguous, but clear and straightforward. And this is a concept that, as we're talking about that, is um, it is often a, a tricky one because while Scripture is clear and there is clarity in that it is one of the elements of Scripture alone, it does not mean that there aren't parts that are a little confusing. And so there's a couple caveats that are, are part of some of our study that, for example, the clarity of Scripture does not mean that there are no passages that are hard to understand. In fact, one of one of the quotes and little tidbits that came out in this is that clarity often comes through labor, that you have to actually work towards some of the clarity. And it doesn't mean that clarity won't mean that there are different interpretations of what a text means as well. And so the clarity of scripture essentially is just the, the core truth that God speaks with intention, that he is effective in his scripture, and that with the Spirit's help, the Spirit illuminates those scriptures to believers in a way that provides them the clarity they need for his purposes. Right, right. So for his purposes, I think the the Westminster Confession has it pretty well, uh, Article 7, and this is some old language, so y'all get ready. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So we're going to caveat that and explain that. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, observed for salvation are so clearly propounded, as in they are explained, and opened in some place of scripture or other, so throughout the whole word of God, that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. And uh, they have a couple citations here. That's Second Peter 3 and then Psalm 119, which is all about the beauty of scripture. So what that is saying is what is sufficient for salvation, what is necessary for salvation is clear in the scriptures. Which is funny because that takes us right into the next one, and that is the sufficiency of scripture. Those really go hand in hand in the same way that inspiration and infallibility really do. And so you have the clarity of scripture being the fact that it communicates everything you need to know, that it is also sufficient, that you find in scripture all things necessary for salvation, but then also for the living of Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the scriptures. So we, we lean on the clarity of Scripture and the illumination of the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit to provide all things necessary for God's glory through those avenues. And so that's really that, that complementary piece of those two and how, they, and how they work together. Sufficiency also means that nothing should be added to the Bible as well, that it is complete in essence and it has everything you need for those. So that is where some of that you can't add anything to the Bible um, really sits on that foundation as well. 
Yeah, the sufficiency there, yeah, to add on to that would be that everything you need for Christian life and practice is in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So therefore, not that doing other things that aren't there aren't necessarily good or beneficial for you, but to require something that's not biblical is, as we talked about in the intro, kind of what led towards the Reformation and the pointing of saying, look, the councils may be requiring this, but since this is not a biblical requirement, you cannot put that burden on people and say that you must do this or that this is one or the only way if it's contra scripture. Yep. The final one is the authority of scripture. And we would place on there, as well as a lot of the writers that we've been we've been reading, would put final authority on there because as you will as you will have heard in our initial episode, it wasn't necessarily the authority of scripture that was under question, it was the final authority of scripture when you were looking at interpretations and actions of the church as well. So talk a little bit briefly about that, and then we'll move along to just giving a higher view of how this played out. Yeah, again, the the authority would have been undisputed by the Catholic Church. Um, So you actually, it's interesting, you won't hear much, um, going back to some of our earlier points about inspiration clarity, there's not a whole lot of that written during the the Reformation because the Catholic Church believe it, and even the counter-Reformation with the Remonstrants, even they didn't deny those things. So mm-hmm. uh, people say we make too big of a deal about it now, but that's because it was it was not disputed. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, dispute that the Bible was authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, going back to, to Article 20, Articles of Religion, why is it the authority? Because it comes from God. So it kind of falls on all those other things we had earlier, the sufficiency, clarity, inspiration. The, uh, the reason that it's, final is because again it comes from god it's inspired by god it's infallible it's already sufficient therefore you can't add counsels you can't add other things and this was the main point of dispute with the catholic church with martin luther and the reformation yeah absolutely so just so now that we have a, a working understanding a little bit of the of the scripture alone elements and what goes into that how it played out is this so as kevin just mentioned The authority of scripture was not really in dispute. Uh, The Catholic Church at the time believed in that. They also believed in most of these these elements. But what happened was there there was a tradition within the church that was elevated to the same level of, of authority as scripture. And what we mean when we say that the Catholic tradition means the Pope, the magisterium, and the councils. What that looked like was that in decisions upon what was allowed and permitted and orthodox practice of mm-hmm. the church of that day was was up to those individuals and councils as well and it was placed that same level of authority and what the reformers came in and said was no if there's ever a dispute between the two scripture has higher authority and is the last word on these things not you one important note here is that what this did not mean was that they were promoting only scripture and that became actually one of the things that down the way as this was was looked at as um in the future was that this was not a nothing but scripture it was just scripture as the final authority and so while luther and the reformers did believe that church tradition was very important to the life of the church and to the edification of believers they did not put it in equal authority with scripture which is one of the really main differences that came during this time and what really caused the break away from the church so can you talk a little bit about that from this point on yeah and I'll, I'll give just one more quote from the westminster and then and then we'll be done with the the old english uh, this is from article 9 the authority of holy scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church 
but wholly upon God who is truth and the author of truth, and therefore should be received because it is the word of God. And if you want a few more um, things to read from that from the Bible, it's Second Peter, Second uh, Timothy, First John, and First Thessalonians. So again, that's really our sum of everything. It comes from God. That's why we believe it. That's why it's the authority. Because what happens when it comes to people? People are sinful beings, and things are going to be abused. And that's what ended up happening in the church. There were, as we talked about in our intro, there were the, the indulgences, the penance. Uh, there were building projects. There were people who were just, just greedy, and they used these things to gain money by adding these practices on, uh, whether they were priests, bishops, popes, whatever it was. They were abusing this and elevating what, be, because you could say the council or the bishop or the church itself was equal to or higher than the mm-hmm. Bible, that they were allowed to do these things. And what they try to do is then keep the Bible from people. Now, not all of them. So we're not going to say every single person throughout these hundreds of years in Europe, every single uh, Christian, every single church. But there were those who did that. And one of the biggest ways they did this was to keep it in Latin. Uh, We talked about that in the intro that, you know, Latin was not, nobody spoke Latin. In some cases, the priests didn't speak Latin. They could recite, um, they could recite it. Uh, the mass and certain aspects of it, um, which is kind of a, a funny anecdote that that's where we actually get the word hocus pocus today to mean like magic, mm-hmm. is that it had kind of become bastardized in the the church in England. He he'd hold up the the wafer and say um, et hoc corpus, which means body of Christ, which he didn't even know, but they kind of forgot how to pronounce it, and they would hold it up, and that it then became the body of Christ. So to the people who didn't understand what's going on. They just heard someone say hocus pocus and magically body of Christ. And we still use that today. And and that's how far removed people were from understanding the things. And that is what happens when people don't have scripture, mm-hmm. right? And so getting it into our language today, getting into English. Remember, people died. We've talked about this before. I think we talked about this at the study Bible one or, or the commentary ones that Getting the Bible into English and understanding things were so important that people died for it. Uh, Wycliffe was never able to finish his because he was executed for this. That's that's how much people wanted to elevate Scripture, or do, not really elevating, put it back where it's placed. Mm-hmm. And if people could read the Bible, they would see again through the sufficiency, through the clarity, that the Bible is the sole rule of faith not the church, Mm -hmm. not some of these other practices that were added. And if they did this, if people could read the Bible, they would reform, they would rebel, and they would protest, and Mm -hmm. we would have Protestants. Yeah, so that brings us to the historical day that many of you may know, the Reformation Day. Many of you may have heard that that was the day that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And that was really what we refer to today as the start of the Reformation. That's called Reformation Day because it really symbolized the outpouring of some of this in in that context. Luther's intent was never to break away from the church. It was to reform the church. However, because of his efforts and the way he fought for them and the, in, in sense, inevitability that it would have to be broken away because of their resistance to his calling out of these, these types of things, ended up contributing to the breaking away and the, the forming of the Protestant church as we know it today. As Kevin mentioned before, Luther also translated the Bible into German during this time, and it was also being translated into other languages, including English, and started spreading all throughout Europe. 
with the, the underpinning of these doctrines that were being upheld. And so that is really what we know today as the Protestant Reformation, that breaking away um, with these foundations. Now, since that time, over the next com- couple of centuries, there have been some huge shifts culturally, historically, that have presented different challenges to upholding the scripture alone doctrine today even. And so we're going to walk through, as we joked even a year ago as we were putting together some of our initial things, we're going to walk through a couple more centuries at a very high level to give you a sense of what that has looked like, starting with the Enlightenment, which was the first period that happened shortly after the Reformation. Many of you have likely heard the term Enlightenment, you learned about it, but it has some real implications for the church and for these doctrines as well. So Kevin, talk to us, give us a time frame for this and some of the big things that came out of this. Yeah, so the Enlightenment, I think most people are pretty familiar with this, uh, or at least mostly familiar. It's going to be something probably late 1600s, early 1800s, depending on how you define it and where you're talking about, um, you know, Scottish, French, and like they all kind of was happening at different times as ideas swirled around. Um, but, and of course, a lot of it was informed by the scientific revolution. All of a sudden, we're discovering new truths, new disciplines, physics, uh, astronomy are being created. We're understanding. Uh, scientific methods coming out. So then you had people like Hume and Kant and Nietzsche all during this time period and all in different places that really said it's it's human reason, it's our knowledge, it's above all else. Yeah, and within that there was also the idea that there was a knowable objective truth out in the world. It was just that we could as humans without any help from God or anybody else with our own intellect and our own reasoning find it. And that fact is really important later as we get to the current state of where we are culturally. So there was a knowable, objective truth, one that didn't change, absolute if you would, and we could know it just by being human. One of the other things that was happening a little bit around this time and overlapped with it was this concept of liberalism with touches on some of the scientific developments that you were referencing. But talk about this a little bit and how it played along with the Enlightenment. Yeah, after the Enlightenment, uh, certainly in Germany in the 19th century, that's when we probably start thinking um, of uh, the higher criticism uh, view, which is kind of considered like a liberal view now. Um, and that is where we would start to, they started to really challenge things, you know, uh, archaeology, biblical and, you know, e- Egyptian and, Ar- and uh, Middle Eastern archaeology all became pretty popular. So we're digging up sites and we're finding things and we're studying the areas in the Bible. Um, so geology is exploding. And then, of course, um, this is around the time the descent of man, uh, you know, Darwin, and theories of evolution come out and essentially we had people say these things because again we're coming out of the enlightenment um and we're saying these things our knowable facts tell us that things can't happen that are listed in the bible and uh this really hits america maybe 1900 1920 uh some people may have heard of the modernist fundamentalist divide um what that really came from actually started with the fundamentals of faith is is where we get the word fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was based on what he saw people rejecting and included things like the resurrection, the virgin birth, because we know from science, we know from our reason, you cannot have a virgin birth. It is not a real thing. Uh, We can't have miracles. Resurrections clearly don't happen. Mm -hmm. And so we had this move, uh, you know, again, kind of started in Germany, especially uh, but it's all through. It's all kind of peeling off the alignment, coming into the early 20th century, and and this is when we just know now that most of the Bible is false. Yes, 
Absolutely. And so we, we've gotten to this place where we don't need God. We've elevated ourselves. We've put God as a this side concept that's becoming more mythical, if you would, in a lot of communities. And this really gives rise to to this elevation of self that began happening. And we've talked a lot about this, and I'm going to punt it back to you to, to spend a little more time on it. But it really started elevating our own personal experience of things mm-hmm. alongside our ability to know truth. And that actually transitions us at one point. But talk a little bit about just what this elevation of self and experience was in the, or the early 1900s. Right. So now here we are. We, we've elevated truth. Um, or I'm sorry. We've elevated ourselves. <laughs> we've probably diminished truth. And then since there's a knowable truth, but you only know it through your experience. And um, this really happened in Europe, again, in mid-19th century with Slayermacher. And really, it, it can't be real if you don't feel it, mm-hmm. essentially. And that, that's how you know it, is that you feel it. And so you, you feel the Holy Spirit, you feel God. You, you don't need objective things that happened, like the Gospels, mm-hmm. like the actual life of Christ, are you know, the, the words of the apostles coming down through us through time. Those aren't the most important things anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but this is what has started to shift us. And you can kind of see what we're getting at here over this past little bit is that that authority is going to come back because the authority is us now. And you had this, uh, especially in America with Charles Finney, it was all about the impact of um, the way you felt, the way you responded, the emotion. He believed that he could bring people to salvation solely by their their emotions Mm -hmm. by their feelings and he wrote textbooks on this he wrote ways to do this he didn't and he denied most of the fundamental doctrines Mm -hmm. but he was one of the most popular preachers in europe because he well really he just put on the best show Mm -hmm. and that's why also at this time in kind of this 19th century time and early into the 1900s um i won't go too much on a tangent because chris is staring at me but uh (laughs) go to wikipedia rabbit hole and look up burnt over district and see as we've unmoored ourselves from scriptures to that new to scripture Chris was talking about when it's just me and scripture and and then also our reasoning and ourselves, you put those together and that's how we just had this explosion of new, um, really heretical denominations. And then that also honestly led into some of the charismatic and Pentecostal mm-hmm. movements in the Azusa Street. Um, but again, go look at that in your own because we got <laughs> we got to keep rolling here. Yes, and so that's going to take us fully into where we are today culturally. We are sitting smack in the middle of what what is called postmodernism, and this is really it's really identified by two main things that we're going to talk about today. The first is relativism, which essentially is the idea that there is not a knowable objective truth. You know, we talked just moments ago about how that was one of the defining characteristics of the Enlightenment, that we could find truth on our own accord, but that there really was a truth out there. The entire concept of relativism is that there is not one truth out there. There are only differing viewpoints. And as you may recognize this term, each person has his or her own truth based on their own experience, their own understanding of things, whether they were able to personally witness something happening and just how they feel about a certain thing. In fact, in this in this one book that we read, which we referenced in our introductory episode as part of this overall series we've been reading to prepare for this, there's this quote that really stuck out to me, and I'm going to read it to you because I think it, it tells a lot about our current culture. It says, each person's truth is merely the product of the community he was birthed from. To claim to know the truth or to possess the only truth is the deadliest, most arrogant sin in the postmodern universe. And that presents such a challenge for Christianity because 
we do claim that there is only one truth and one way. And so you can tell right off the bat some of the challenges this has caused for us and will continue to, which we'll come back to in kind of debriefing on how we enter into this as Christians. But the second part of this postmodernism is this idea of deconstruction. And if you've been listening to some of the conversations happening, even in the online space recently, there has been so much talk about deconstruction. It's not new to the past couple of years. It's really been starting to happen. And it's this idea that meaning itself is not inherent in a text that it's really dependent on the reader. This question of what does it mean to you has taken supremacy in a lot of our conversations. And the goal is then through this deconstructing movement to to take apart the meaning construction process. So no longer are we letting the text provide our meaning, we are giving the texts meaning by our interpretation and our experience. It's not really based on facts, only interpretation. You've likely seen this in conversations you've had in other areas of your life. It's such a popular thing that is happening that really your only truth, your only entry point is what you make of it, what you put into it, what you see as truth and your own meaning. And that's really the the two sides of this whole concept of postmodernism. And I think if we are really honest with ourselves, we can see the ways in which it even seeps into our own life because this is really the culture that we sit within. And I know I've seen this happen even in Bible studies I've been part of where we put priority on asking what a text means to us personally and how we experience it or what what it may mean to us. And that's not really a bad question in and of itself. I think I, I typically understand the intent, but maybe a better question, and this is where language really matters, is perhaps a better question is not what does this mean to you, but how does the truth in this text apply to you? And so I think that's one of the things that brings us to these questions of why should we care and why does this matter as Christians? So Kevin, if you could summarize some of that in your perspective, why should we care about this? Yeah, I think going through our brief survey of 500 years, (laughs) you, you can see why we were really stressing the final part and the authority part because we've we've come full circle it's the most disputed thing of the day it's just instead of christians i guess fighting with other christians about who is the final authority is it the bible or is it the church we we've dropped the church i mean catholics haven't but you know modern culture our big fight as evangelicals is those who would say it's ourselves right Mm -hmm. So we're, it's, we've come all the way again through all of this back to what is the final authority. And, you know, it, it's our reason. It, it's our experience. It's our, our felt needs. And that's how we know what matters, mm-hmm. um, what, what God wants, you know, quotes, air quotes, you can't see them. I'm putting them out there for our life mm-hmm. uh, because we know what we feel and what we feel and, and experience because of our reason, because mm-hmm. of our intellect is above. And I also think there's been a lot of attacks on um, the infallibility and the inspiration. People say, ah, you know, that was so long ago. It's different time, different place. We don't really know because we didn't experience. We didn't see it. It all kind of becomes this, this cluster and you get stuck there. Kind of the way I'm getting stuck on my point here. So we can, <laughs> okay. we'll cut that. But um, so why should we care? Yeah, because we've come full circle again. Yeah, absolutely. We're still fighting the authority of Scripture. Very much so. And given the nature of the postmodernist mentality that we have all around us and the culture that we're in, the way I would put it as far as why should we care as Christians and why does this matter to be aware of is the fact that if we are not careful, 
we are so susceptible to this because it's everywhere. It's in movies, it's in books, it's in it's in the podcasts we listen to, it's in the conversations we're having with our coworkers, it's with the it's in the conversations we're having with our neighbors and oftentimes within our churches. Culture is so hard to put your fingers on at times because it is everywhere and it becomes the natural way of entering into most situations. And so from a personal standpoint, it needs to be something we are very aware of because it's so easy to fall prey to it. But then on the flip side of that, it also shapes every single conversation and interaction we have with those around us. And so as those who are constantly serving as ambassadors and image bearers and witnesses to God and his truth, it becomes so important that we remember every time we're talking with someone that this is inevitably shaping the way that they're entering those conversations. That every time we're talking with a coworker, this is the frame of reference they have. And so being mindful of that as we engage lovingly but also with courage in those situations to be able to speak truth and to do so in a way that is glorifying to God and that is honoring to God and that is is helpful in shaping the gospel as we share it and proclaim God's good news. And I think without that, we, we are going to be losing a connection point that we can have with people and meeting them, quote unquote, as we say, where they are first and bringing them into the truth of God. And so I think it is critical that we keep this top of mind at all times. What else do you have? Yeah, I just I have one other thing. If you're interested in kind of this change in the, the elevation of self, there's a great book, which I actually haven't read yet. I'm going to start it today. Uh, I've heard a couple interviews about it, and I think probably half of our listeners have already read it because I've talked to some of you about the book. It's uh, Carl Truman. It's called The Triumph of Self, and I believe he starts the book in uh, The Enlightenment. I'm pretty sure. I think he goes back to then and kind of starts to talk about that human reason stretch that we talked about into the modern. And then, the again, that's the subtitle of the book, The Elevation of Self. So uh, if you're more interested in that, check that out. Um, hopefully you enjoy it, and I hopefully I'll enjoy it as I read it today. Yes, hopefully you do, because I'm reading it next. <laughs> so it's always hard to read a book after you if it wasn't super great in your eyes. And I'm like, man, what am I getting myself into? All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this discussion. We hope that it was enlightening. <laughs> we hope that it was nice. fun to go through, right? <laughs> and we hope that it helps you think just a little bit differently about how to enter into some of these discussions and gives you a deeper appreciation for the doctrine of sola scriptura and the place that it can and should have in our lives as believers today. We invite you as always to rate, review, and subscribe to the Modern Cloister podcast so you can join us for the journey, get episodes as soon as they're out, and help us increase our organic reach by reviewing and spreading the word. So if you enjoyed this episode and you're excited for what's to come, we invite you to also share it with your friends. Let them know what's happening and invite them into the conversation. We also invite you as always to connect with us on social media. I'm at Carissa Turner on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find Kevin. I'm usually blogging at MondayMorningTheologian.com. Yes, and you can always find us at ModernCloister.com. See you next time.